This podcast is for investment professionals only. Hello and welcome to this very special edition of Rich Pickings, our outlook for 2020, as told by our chief investment officers across all the asset classes. What risks, what rewards and what hurdles demand the attention of investors in the year ahead and how should we be thinking about them? Listen on to find out more. With me in the studio are Steve Ellis, Chief Investment Officer for Fixed Income, Andrew McCaffrey, Global CIO for Alternatives and Solutions, Neil Cable, Head of Real Estate, and Poonam Sharma, Director of Equities. Welcome to you all. Well, now I'd like to start with a single word, a single word that you would choose to describe 2020. Neil Cable, what's the one word that describes the year ahead for you? Well, I'm going to, given the unfairness of the question, um, I'm going to try and encapsulate two things into one. I'm going to say incoming. So it's sort of, you know, the incoming flack of what might be hitting us through uncertainty. But actually, given that capital growth has really gone out of the market and in real estate, certainly, it's about income. So you should be doing that. You should be incoming your portfolio. <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> a bit corny, well, but that's, that's a good word. Okay. Well, Poonam, how about you? What one word would you use to describe the coming year? I would describe readjustment of the markets. Uh, continuous readjustment going forward would be my key theme. Readjustment up or down? To protect the bottom. <laughs> okay. All right. So, uh, on the positive side. And Steve, your one word. I think it has to be tricky. And I think there's a couple of reasons for that. The first one is in, in this world where spreads, well, I'm talking about fixed income, spreads are very tight and um, the overall level of core yields is so low. How do you actually um, replicate the kind of returns that we've had this year for next year? And I think the other reason that this could be quite tricky next year is all about liquidity. And liquidity in markets can evaporate very quickly if we do have serious barriers of dislocation. And I think navigating those tricky parts of uh, where liquidity is, uh, is, is, very tr- is very tested next year will be a key thing for us to focus on. And finally, Andrew, how about you? What's, what's your one word? I'm going to draw on all three of my uh, colleagues and, uh, and call it transitional. Uh, and uh, transitional from a, a world that's been remarkably stable. And as we uh, um, you know, sit here today, markets are seeing uh, very low volatility. Uh, I've seen a remarkable uh, improvement in risk sentiment. Um, and this feels to a degree unsustainable with some of the events that are on the calendar for 2020. And so I'd say a transition in state for the markets um, as we look into the new year. So it's not going to be what it has been thus far. Um, if I look at it, we've got incoming readjustment, tricky transitional or, or tricky transitions. I think that pretty much sums it up in a nutshell, doesn't it? Well, Let's explore things in a little more detail. There's one more chief investment officer who couldn't be here today, and that's Roman Boshi, Fidelity's global CIO of equities. Here's his cautiously optimistic assessment. Roman, uh, welcome to the cafeteria here in Fidelity. And the big question I want to ask you is, how will equities perform in 2020? They should perform reasonably well. Because uh, on the one hand, we will still be confronted uh, to a never-ending political background noise. But at the same time, we should recover EPS growth. Earnings per share. Earnings per share, yeah. And why is that so important? It's critical because over the long run, earnings are the only relevant indicator in the driving seat. Not only for the US, but also for Europe and Japan. Because uh, the big difference between a one-year vision and a 10-year vision, and it has been demonstrated a couple of times, is that over the very long run, 
earnings are explaining the vast majority of market price movements. So as long as you're holding over the long run, make sure it's um, shares that are earning and exactly. you think that's going to be exactly. um, continuing it's in 2020. It's critical not to be distracted by short-term trends, much more influenced by the background noise, starting with uh, over the last couple of years, uh, the political background noise, so the Brexit, this trade war rhetoric. But on the other hand, we had to deal with a much more serious issue, which was we were exposed to an earnings recession. Personally, I was not believing in an earnings recession and we avoided the earnings recession so far. And the good news is that now we are on track to recover earnings per share growth and a quite significant and sustainable one for next year. We are talking about mid to high single digit, so it's not that bad. I suppose you're seeing that in some companies, but not all. So let's let's have a look at the, the, the distinction there, because certainly if we turn to consumers in the US, for example, they have been doing very well and seem to be sustaining the economy there. Will that continue in 2020, do you think? It should, but uh, it's somewhat already priced in. So their stocks are starting to be slightly expensive. This is why uh, we are expecting a kind of... a rebound on the value side because the value has been underperforming for years now everywhere including in the US and for next year especially during the first half of the year we could expect a better return from value stocks from small and mid caps also some of the small and mid caps being also value names bearing in mind that uh, within the value space we are still remaining pretty much away of financial names. How solid um, are consumers uh, at the moment? Because we're still seeing, for example, really good uh, employment data, um, inflation is low, consumer confidence is high. Um, Is that going to stay the same in 2020? It should, because the key difference between this end cycle story this time and uh, during a a traditional economic cycle is that this time the consumer is fully enjoying the lower for longer interest rate stories versus a traditional economic cycle during which when the consumer is doing well for, for a while, he is exposed to at some point to higher interest rates, or in other words, to cut a long story short, to an overheating economy. And this time the economy is not overheating. The good news is that this recovery was longer than expected, and the bad news was that this recovery was definitely a very mild recovery. We are talking about a 10-year-long bull market, but the type of GDP growth we have experienced in accumulated, in aggregated terms over this decade has been much lower than what we used to experience over six or seven years. As we are anticipating interest rates, both short-term and long-term interest rates, to remain very low for a while, we will pass the baton now much more uh, uh, to the fiscal policy. So the fiscal policy will play a much bigger role in the next two to three years and the monetary policy by the way the monetary policy is staying probably in easing mode in very dovish mode but uh, uh, being at zero it's hard to envisage much more much less than zero let's look at the upside Um, where are the opportunities in 2020 what are the the positive stories that you're looking for the positive story is that when interest rates are remaining at zero for a while, if I would be provocative, I would say forever, because it's the only way we found to explain that, yes, an excessive level of debt was sustainable. The beauty with equities is that they are still delivering an income remaining extremely stable over time. For uh, decades now, uh, if you have a look at an MSCI world or any type of a broad index dividend yield, it remained significantly above 2% uh, 
uh, whatever the decade uh, has been. So when people are starving for income, and they are today, they should more than ever consider equity as the ultimate source of income. Any particular areas that you're looking for? We are always very cautious when it's about the dividend. And once again, uh, sorry to insist uh, on that, uh, uh, we are avoiding European banks, for instance, because here the dividend is probably among the highest in the world, but uh, uh, among the least sustainable. So we have to talk about sustainable dividend, sustainable income, which means that income cannot be seen as a factor, but as someone combined with quality and, and growth. So a rather chirpy sounding Roman there with a focus on earnings, a recovery he's talking about and the consumer sustaining the economy, especially in the US. Steve, do you share that rosy outlook? Well, I think being uh, from fixed income, I probably have to take a more pessimistic uh, outlook, if you like. But I think there's some parts to what Roman was saying that um, ring true for fixed income as well. I, I mean, the one thing that I would say is that it's quite amazing how the narrative in the market has gone from being very pessimistic about growth um, for the next 12 months, fearing recession and you know deflation, to one where we're now talking about reflation and even the end of the, the Fed cutting cycle. And you know without really seeing any tangible improvement in the data, you've just seen a stabilization, if anything. So uh, you know that's why we've seen markets performing pretty well. We've seen spreads tightening, whether it's high yield, investment grade, and so on. But the, uh, the the other side of the coin, we also seen core yields moving higher as well, which had been detrimental to total returns. So I, w- I think going into next year, the key for me, the key question is, um, well, there are a couple, but I think, are we going into recession? And I think the, the signs are now um, forming that at least we're going to avoid recession. It could be a mild form of stagflation, if you like, but we're going to avoid recession because I think if we have recession, then we have some concerns about defaults going higher and that would cause spreads to widen. Um, but the second thing is reflation and the appearance of inflation and what the consequences could be from that. Right. And Andrew, what about you? Where do you sit between Steve here in fixed income and Roman in equities and his sunny optimism? And most probably more biased towards uh, Steve's perspective, uh, maybe even slightly further rather than uh, the Steve. Why is that? I think Roman made a very good point about uh, the consumer. It's been remarkably robust. Um, But if you look back historically at the relationship between CEO optimism and consumer optimism, um, it's very seldom when we've seen such a gap between these two where CEOs are now very worried about the future. And uh, the consumers are still looking back from low interest rates and from uh, uh, jobs having been plentiful. Uh, that there's a number of things happening. One is, will that CEO optimism um, bounce? Um, in reality, most probably a lot of that is to do with uh, uh, the outlook for the US election, um, as well as for the China-US uh, uh, trade deal. Um, I think there's also uh, another factor that um, <clears throat> when you look at the underlying election dynamics, that um, some of the US corporates especially have started to show signs that uh, they don't want to uh, to run you know, such heavy issuance uh, levels and starting to uh, uh, to build up cash a little bit more, um, you know, try and be a little bit more cautious. And so I just wonder whether we're looking at an environment where actually that we start to see some of that consumer optimism um, starts to give way to a change in dynamic, which is that CEOs are giving us a forward um, example 
Uh, I'm sure we'll come on to the China position, um, which I'm not as optimistic about in terms of the current um, sentiment around the trade deal. Um, and then lastly, uh, really, is that if these come together with a um, an election that looks like it could uh, have very different um, policy settings, if uh, Mr. Trump doesn't win, uh, then that also will have its own self-fulfilling mechanism back into the US economy. We'll come to those later on. You've set the conversation up very well. But first, let me cut to Neil. Is it a similar picture for you in real estate? Yeah, well, we're the classic hybrid asset class, so I'm a bit pessimistic and a bit optimistic. And I, I guess the you know fundamentally, what are we asking here? Are we asking about indices going down, markets going down, recession, or are we are we saying we're optimistic or pessimistic about holding on to, for example, what Roman referred to as quality income through a cycle? Because whoever's listening to this, you know, you you might be running a corporate pension scheme, you might be an individual worried about your ISAs or, or savings or whatever. Um, no one tends to come completely out of one asset class and go completely into another. People have got to be worried about what they're doing for the next year, two years, three years. And that's what resonates with me as a real estate investor because we're uh, we're unable to buy and sell buildings quickly. So we have to try and see through the cycle a little, a little bit more. And it's very easy to get pessimistic at the moment. Um, you know, the trade wars, um, fiscal discipline slackening off um, even amongst the parties in the UK or, you know, US with conservatives and Republicans who have historically um, been the ones that, that, that were the, the prudent managers of the economy. Um, you know, just tons of stuff going on that you could get very pessimistic about. But actually, I think there are a lot of companies out there, a lot of tenants in our buildings who are doing okay. Um, they're paying the rent, they're paying the dividends, they're paying their coupons and their bonds. Um, and actually, if you focus on that quality of income, um, and, and really forensically do that, not just sort of, you know, take a diversified spread of exposures um, and, and really make that central to what you're trying to take exposure to over the next one to three years, then I think that should should allow you to um, weather some of those risks that are out there. So really looking under the bonnet is your advice. Uh, know what it is that uh, that you're buying. Right, well, Poonam, um, we heard Roman predicting more positive flows into equities next year. You also cover equities, but with a focus on emerging markets. So do you see a different scenario playing out there to the one that we've heard so far? Slightly, I would say. We are dependent upon the developed markets, but uh, I, I do believe that the balance of risks uh, are to Towards easing. And as the rhetoric uh, is about low growth, and as I believe that, you know, the easing or stability in rates will continue, uh, they will, and I also don't believe that inflation will surprise on the out, uh, upside, as I believe there are still uh, huge output gaps that exist. And the risk both from a demand and a supply perspective to uh, raise inflation uh, are low in my view. Now, how does that uh, matter for the emerging markets as as a whole, uh, till about let's say last year, emerging markets were very worried about you know the Fed tightening briefly, and hence all their policy efforts were directed towards stabilizing their currency because currency is an extremely important factor in countries which have uh, huge current account deficits. But but as the balance of risks shifts towards more easing, I believe that the policy effort of the emerging market economies can be shifted more pro-growth. They can divert their attention and their uh, the monetary easing towards growth. If you look at the real rates in a lot of our emerging markets, they are hugely positive. So there is room to cut from a monetary perspective. Uh, we've already... Uh, 
um, had election or political cycles in these various emerg emerging markets. The rhetoric is towards reform. The rhetoric is towards boosting a little bit of growth. And hence, on the balance for 2020, I would believe that uh, it's not hugely optimistic, but uh, th the risks uh, are lower. And hence, I would be positive on emerging markets as an asset class. A convincing case. Uh, Andrew? I think I would um, uh, you know, also support that. And another factor could be that um, one thing I believe quite strongly in is that we could see a change in the dollar um, from a very strong environment um, to maybe one that is uh maybe less clear and, and even um, some challenges. And part of that will come through capital movement. The US has been a, uh, a drawing in of capital as a place of um, stability and um, and political, uh, um, you know, positive environment. Whatever one thinks of President Trump, it has been, you know, remarkably constructive uh, environment for the economy, and that may start to, um, as we said, transition uh, in the year ahead. And that would be very good as well if it means that we see flows start to uh, come back into, um, you know, members of the emerging market world, and and also the another byproduct that is not going to change uh, from the, the the spat between uh, China and US as it will go on for many years is that supply chains have been changing so many emerging economies are benefiting from this um, and those could do exceptionally well um, in an environment where you know they're generating much better growth rates than some of the, the larger economies. You've brought up the American election. Uh, I'm going to pick up on Poonam's point about inflation in just a moment but because you've raised it what concerns you about whichever way the politics there might go as this year unfolds in the States? So I think there's a couple of things. One, one obviously we're, we're now um, just uh, having to come to terms with um, is uh, you know, Mayor Bloom Bloomberg of uh, of old, uh, you know, going to step in and uh, try to become President uh, Bloomberg, or at least be the Democratic uh, candidate. The challenge, I think, until this point has been how well Elizabeth Warren has been doing, um, and the fact that her policy framework is so radically different um, and is very anti-corporate. And so she rolled back some of the tax cuts that occurred, uh, looked to penalize uh, obviously the higher earners and so uh, you know, attack and uh, inequality within your society, but also the, um, the cost then for Medicare for all. And so you have a dynamic where there could be a huge increase in deficit, which we've already seen a huge increase in the deficit, but accelerate even more. But at a time when actually corporates will become um, and have to become uh, you know, more um, cautious. And I think the risk is through the year is that if she were to be the candidate, then corporates would start to behave sooner or later. Um, and that means caution, build cash, and be worried about what that may mean for policy settings, even if it doesn't mean she gets in. And that I think the challenge is whether that is enough to create a self-fulfilling prophecy by slowing the US economy down in and of itself. Are there upsides? Um, we've talked about consumers. And if American consumers feel happier with, say, uh, medical care in a way that they haven't before, uh, or they're being supported in some other way, policies that are being introduced to try and uh, reduce inequality, for example? So I think the challenge is we're already seeing, um, if you look at the uh, the JOLTS index, which is the job offering index, already turning over. The chances are that um, payrolls are going to start to stabilise and tick up. Um, and so you know, the optimism that's being felt is backward looking. Um, the risk is that you have an environment where it looks just more cautious. Now, it may not be bad, but it uh, will look more cautious. And, and consumers, uh, if they feel that the election is being uncertain and they're starting to see that you know, the job environment is maybe not keeping up the pace that it has done, um, then that starts to feed through where a degree of caution comes into the consumer as well as into the CEO. 
either way, a, a very different picture, and that does create uncertainties. Yeah, I, I just wanted to um, jump in here. I think what Andrew's alluding to is the, the central to what we've all got to be thinking about across all of the asset classes, which is the potential re-emergence of inflation. And I think you know everything that Andrew said about Elizabeth Warren is true, but actually, if you look at Trump. He's been pretty profligate. You know, you, you, you said it, Andrew, that the deficit's already ballooned. Um, he's been cutting taxes, possibly at the wrong time in the cycle, etc. Um, so almost whoever gets back in in the US, it, it's probably going to have a fiscally unconstrained to a degree impact, um, potentially a damaging impact. And we might see the, the re-emergence of inflation. And actually, that's quite true across a lot of places. So with the um, early stages of the UK general election, it seems to be a contest between, you know, how much each of the main parties is going to spend. You know, it's just, it's, it's incredible. We haven't seen this for a very long time. Um, so, Let me bring in Steve quickly here. Yeah. Because, Steve, you must obviously be looking into this and the risk of inflation returning because it hasn't, perhaps surprisingly, it hasn't been around for such a long time. So if you look at um, inflation as an asset class, it's been very much out of favor in the last few years. You know, people have been concerned about more deflation than, than inflation. Um, so break-even inflation has remained very low, more like 1.6%, 1.7%. If you look at five-year, five-year break-even inflation in the US, which is the Fed's preferred gauge, it's, it's been very subdued for many years. And suddenly you're seeing signs of life in that um, finally the market's getting a hold of this idea that we could be seeing the, the whites of the eyes of, of inflation. And that's because you know, we're seeing a tight labor market. Uh, and it's finally um, showing up in, in it's still very moderate rises in, in average hourly earnings, but you know, money supply growth is rising as well. And with fiscal expansion on the cards, um, just about everywhere, I think there's, there's, there's a concern that the inflation actually may start to rise. And when I look across all the different asset classes and fixed income, so with more conventional asset classes like high yield, investment grade, and so on, it's very difficult to see a huge amount of value in many asset classes. But but one that stands out as being undervalued because of it being out of favour for many years is inflation, inflation break even. So that's why I think if you you know if you want a building block when you do want to protect yourself from rising inflation, I think having exposure to an inflation fund through break-even inflation is probably a good thing. And I think, you know, when, when I look at the environment that we've been in in the last 10 years or so since the financial crisis, it's become very clear that debt levels have increased quite considerably, um, both in private and, and public debt. So, so total debt is about 350% of GDP globally right now, which is off the charts. And, you know, I sit and think, how do we get out of this situation? And for many years, I was convinced that there would be debt write-downs, haircuts, debt forgiveness, moratoriums. That's the only way to get out of this mess. But I'm more and more convinced now that authorities are, find that very impalatable, and they will do whatever it takes, whatever it takes to avoid that kind of situation. And to the extent that if we do, let's say next year, we do head towards recession, let's say, um, that central banks will continue to be very accommodative in pushing rates and um, more negative in the case of the ECB, but you know, close to zero for for the Fed. And also, I, I'm convinced that they would even engage in helicopter money to to get uh, things going. And I think that could be very inflationary. So you have to be careful what you you ask for. But 
that I think the authorities see the only palatable way out of this is to generate inflation, to erode the value of debt. And I think that's a very, very dangerous thing to do because we have a huge debt stock, an overhang of debt, which are very contingent on low yields, low interest rates to keep the, the party going to service that debt. And if we get inflation in the system, which is what they kind of want to erode the value of debt, then if yields ever do have to go go higher, rates go higher, then I think it's going to be very, very difficult to service that debt. What would happen in that situation? Because that sounds like a horror film. Well, I just don't think the world can tolerate higher yields, higher interest rates. So we're going to be stuck in this very low-yielding environment for a protracted period of time, which means financial repression. Central banks have to be very careful here that you know once inflation's out of the bottle and it's been contained for many years, but if it does come out of the bottle, then it's going to be very difficult to get back in because they just cannot raise interest rates with this kind of debt overhang. So that then sounds like it goes back to governments that need to be looking at what they've considered palatable in terms of debt write-downs or jubilees or whatever you want to call them. The ball seems to be in government's courts. Uh, Poonam, you talked earlier about fiscal stimulus. What appetite is there for governments to start tackling the problems that Steve's talking about? It is limited, you know. Uh, uh, We being bottoms-up investors and looking for uh, ideas from where growth can uh, be generated, I constantly look at the traditional GDP equation of, you know, it being consumption plus investment plus net exports, right? So the net exports angle is marred by the entire trade war and, you know, the talk about deglobalization and stuff like that. Then I look at the investment cycle. When I look at the investment cycle and I look at the emerging markets, we pretty much peaked in 2007, 2008 when our ROAs peaked, our, um, you know, our debt equity levels were at the lowest. And since then, uh, the return on assets have only only come down and the debt levels have only gone up. There's enough capacity in the system. So there are huge output gaps when I look at it. So, you know, that will not trigger inflation. And that cape- there is no scope that private CAPEX comes in because there's already enough capacity and balance sheets are leveraged. So growth is not going to be triggered by that kind of private investments. Uh, consumption, yes, has held us in good stead for quite some time. But, you know, incrementally, uh, we, we need to create those uh, drivers of job growth, income growth from, from a consumption perspective. So that brings me back to the government spending, right? So uh, government spending needs to go up. But do we have a lot of appetite for the governments to spend? The answer is no. There are strict thresholds with respect to fiscal deficit to GDP. Uh, Governments will not be meeting those thresholds. They will be spending uh, spending a bit. That will create some kind of a multiplier boost confidence and that's what will trigger the investment cycle. Well, it seems like policymakers are in a bit of a bind here, whether it's fiscal or monetary policy. Andrew, which way do you think they should lean? Well, I I think again that, um, as uh, Poonan has highlighted, that um, it's interesting the difference between countries because what we're seeing potentially in the US is a degree of um, profligacy already forming and uh, and that could accelerate. Whereas in many countries, there won't be the, the, the same level of scope. They've put in either, uh, you know, uh, bounded rules through legislation, um, through the way in which they've managed to ensure that uh, they can fund and have stability in different ways through the rules that have been written into uh, to various systems. Um, and so this could become more of an issue and I said back to why I feel that there's, uh, you know, it's always a big call, but to say for the first time in a long time, the US actually could reach the point where it's going to underperform. And I think part of that, as I said, could be looking at the dollar, but part of it could be just through 
assets and where they're valued today and the ability to keep on stimulating the US relative to the rest of the world just seems to be unsustainable. And that, um, you know, this could be just one element that starts to be, uh, you know, a chink in that particular armor the US has had for, uh, for so long. Um, and you know, back to the idea of it being transitional, it could be that what we see is that's, that starts to uh, to flow out that you see both from debt relationships and also from um, uh, you know, the equity uh, relationships that there's uh, far more uh, value by looking um, you know, to other countries around the world, especially to the developing world, but also looking to other areas which have been through their pain, um, you know, the Japan, and uh, like there's a lot of valuation and cash support uh, that could do um, uh, you know, relatively better. So I, I do think that this is one of the things that's going to be one of the themes as well that play out in 2020 could be that that US supremacy starts to finally see some um, giving back. And perhaps giving way to China, which is the other major economy we haven't talked about yet, uh, but but it's slowing. So where do you see China heading? The interesting part about all this is that um, China um, has been on the slowing pathway for, for some time, but part of that is through policy. Um, it's to transition their economy to be far more domestically focused, to be able to um, create the benefits within the economy rather than just being always driven by this export uh, driven and um, you know looking outside to uh, to the rest of the world to uh, to be able to um, generate their uh, uh, you know um, levels of growth uh, over the recent years. And that is an interesting one because it means they are looking more to how they can both sustain. You know, that level of gradual maturity of the economy. And that's also a move from manufacturing to services. Within that, I think the challenge is um, that that's not good for some of the developed com- economies because they've been fueled by all of this um, uh, you know, Chinese growth that has been focused um, you know, so much outside the country. So we have to get used to that um, change. And that, again, I think is another part of the jigsaw that may actually not be good for you know, US and, and parts of um, uh, you know, the rest of the developed world as we look through the next um, you know, few years. Well, Steve, what about the debt that's amassed behind the Chinese economy? Yeah, well, I think it's um, it's a huge problem, actually. They've hit that Minsky moment where they've been issuing so much debt that the marginal incremental benefit from that debt in terms of passing through to GDP for every dollar of debt that they used to issue back um, in the mid-1990s, uh, so just after the deval was about 80 cents would pass through straight into GDP. Now it's more like 20 cents passing through to GDP. So they have to throw ever increasing amounts of debt just to generate the same amount of of GDP. You know, again, (laughs) they can finance that debt because a lot of it's internal debts. It's CNY debt. They don't, they have very large onshore savings ratio, but they have been increasing their dollar denominated debt. Um, And we saw what happened back in um, 2015 in August of that year where they devalued because they were building up too much dollar debt, but they have been doing so again more recently. I don't think that's a huge problem. I just, you know, because it's still relative to GDP is kind of very low, but it's just more the fact that, you know, they're very saturated in terms of the amount of debt they've got. No economy can function well with such huge amount of debt. All you're doing is bringing forward future GDP growth into the current period. And, and that's my issue is that it doesn't feel like it's very sustainable growth when you keep issuing more and more debt just to running to stand still, if you like. Poonam? I 100% agree with Steve on this one uh, because, uh, you know, this debt was created only to buy top line. It was, it's not profitable debt. It, uh, you know, it came with very, very low return on investment. But the fact also remains that, you know, uh, China as an emerging market economy has 
uh, is readjusting the fastest. You know, this is the old economy where the leverage levels are very high. But the fact remains that the, you know, the number of patents outstanding for China continues to increase. Uh, the fact remains that from a technology perspective, from a fintech perspective, they are far ahead from the rest of the world. They have a huge domestic economy of uh, which, which can boost uh, the consumption part of the economy. So, yes, they will not grow at 10% plus growth rates, but uh, can they grow, uh, continue to grow? Uh, can consumption, new technology, newer sectors boost this growth? The answer is probably yes. So that is the reason why I use readjustment, uh, because in the deglobalized world, you have to look inwards and which are the economies which can actually readjust or have taken the lead in readjustment. I would say China and India probably, you know, have taken some of that lead. Well, thank you very much for that brighter interpretation, Poonam. Okay, it's time now to play hot cakes and hot potatoes. Looking ahead to 2020 and taking all that we've discussed into consideration, what would you buy like a hot cake and what would you drop like a hot potato? Steve, I'll start with you. Your hot cakes. So I think, like we were talking about earlier, I, this is going to be an income-seeking world. Uh, rates are going to stay very low for a long period of time. Provided we avoid recession, I think that uh, you want to find uh, funds which have you know, given you de- decent yield and so on. So... I, I like emerging market debt. I'm a little bit biased. I used to be a portfolio manager for EMD. Um, but I think, um, the, the income you get and the diversification you get from a fund like that is it ticks all the boxes. Oh, let me also give you another one as well. Cause I, I think, um, you have to barbell this a bit. And I said earlier, I think you want to have inflation as a protection in your fund. So I would have a building block as being an inflation link fund within your portfolio right now. Um, hot potato. That's a, t- that's a quite, uh, tough one. It's all relative, I guess, but I would say right now you kind of want to avoid anything which has got a significant uh, duration in it. So, you know, with yields rising in the core. So, um, I would keep to, to more lower duration strategies and it kind of goes back to, um, uh, that might one of my top picks. I think you want short duration income type of funds. Thank you. Moving around the room, Neil, what's your hotcake? Um, I'm a little bit worried about inflation too. So if you want inflation-linked bonds if in your bond portfolio, you probably want inflation-linked bonds with a roof in your real estate portfolio. Um, so continental European real estate has inflation linkage as standard in its leases. Um, and I would, I would focus very much um, in the core eurozone, the strongest bit, Germany, France, Belgium, Netherlands, Luxembourg. Um, and if you wanted to make me go more specific, I'd say that um, mixed use property is probably much more interesting than than the standard sort of office retail industrial, just because that's the future. You know, WeWork was a basket case of a company in many respects, but it was emblematic of how people want to use buildings differently in future. And as you wander around cities now, you tend not to get buildings that are just used for office use, they're used for different things. You might have a yoga studio or, you know, a little, some retail or leisure or some residential on the top. You know, I think that that is uh, a, very much a strong trend that is very uh, underpriced. And your hot potato? Retail. That's no surprise. Yeah, I mean, it just, you know, I could have said that last year. Um, you did. We did. Yeah, I did. Um, it still hasn't, you know, shaken out in terms of pricing or, or full impact on, on the property market. Um, but the economics of running shops has changed forever. So 
Poonam, over to you. Your hot cakes? My hot cakes are in line with the, with my view that uh, real interest rates are positive and uh, that creates scope for cost of equity for emerging markets to come down and I, hence I remain constructive on emerging markets as an asset class, though of, of course political and idiosyncratic country risks remain. But uh, overall, I think that will be uh, my constructive outlook. Uh, from a negative outlook perspective, since uh, I'm also of the view that fiscal spending will go uh, up and which could put pressure on the longer end of the yield curve. Uh, so I wouldn't be long uh, duration, as Steve also said. Okay. And finally, coming to you, Andrew, what are your hot cakes? I think I would have to agree that um, looking to, you know, you have to be selective, but um, to the emerging and uh, developing uh, countries, both equity and debt. Um, as, uh, uh, and I think you know, I'd be very keen on the relative trade of finally um, starting to uh, be relatively short US to buy some of these um, uh, you know, country exposures, uh, as I think those relative spreads will do very well. And what do you expect to drop like a hot potato? I think the risk in, in this is you know, the change in the dollar's position, um, that uh, it might not be over just yet, but it certainly is in the uh, the makings and the risk is that 2020 could see that uh, the dollar's supremacy starts to uh, uh, to change within all this, which helps to fuel that uh, that trade. And I'd also go for the the long duration um, trade. It, it will be a sort of you know two steps forward, one step back type uh, environment, but there could be uh, you know quite a significant repricing if we really see policy change around the world start to accelerate setting the scene for 2020. Well, thank you very much to my studio guests, Andrew McCaffrey, Neil Cable, Poonam Sharma and Steve Ellis, and to our other contributor, Romain Bouchine. The producer was Charlie Humphreys. If you've liked what you've heard, then please subscribe and rate us on your podcast app. And why not try our sister podcast, Fidelity Answers, with the latest episode of our Investor's Guide to China series. Thank you very much for listening and goodbye. This podcast is for investment professionals only and should not be relied on by private investors. This podcast is provided for informational purposes only and is intended only for the person or entities to which it is sent. It must not be reproduced or circulated to any other party without prior permission of fidelity. The value of investments can go down as well as up, so you may get back less than you invest. For other important legal notices, please see our website, professionals.fidelity.co.uk forward slash about hyphen fidelity.